Our topic, Repentance and the Lordship Controversy. We're going to be analyzing kind of the dispensational view of repentance today and uh, some of the errors associated with it. And here's some passages that I'm going to read real quickly. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Acts 2, 37-38, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, for Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 26, 20. I declared first to those in Damascus, again in Jerusalem, and through all the, all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. And then Acts 20, 21, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. A doctrine in which there is much error and confusion today among evangelicals, and sad to say, due to the federal vision, some who claim to be reformed, is that of repentance. Due to the influence of dispensationalism, people are told that repentance from sin is not necessary, and people can receive Jesus as Savior yet, while yet refusing to trust in him as Lord. And this view has resulted in what is called the carnal Christian heresy, which is the idea that one should be considered, that one, you should regard someone as a real Christian, a true Christian, but only a carnal Christian if they accept Jesus but still live a sinful lifestyle. And of course, they point to Corinthians where Paul uses the terminology. Of course, he's not referring to people living in open scandalous sin like fornication and adultery or or theft. He's talking about people who have a party spirit in the church. And then what they'll do is they'll point to people like David and Solomon and and uh, they'll say, well, look, they, they didn't have Christ as Lord all the time. Well, yeah, people backslide. We acknowledge that. But they're arguing that you don't need to believe in Christ as Lord or receive him as Lord or put him, make him Lord of your life uh, to be a real Christian. The older dispensationalism even taught that the doctrine of repentance was a Jewish doctrine that included the necessity of keeping uh, the law or works and has nothing to do with the Christian church or Gentile believers. Modern dispensationalists are more careful and we'll talk about the necessity of repentance, but they want to they, they want to say, yeah, well, that, that means a change of mind. It's, they say it's the same thing. It's the flip side of faith. It's a change of mind. But whether your life changes or not, that's not really necessary. They'll say that. They'll say it's a good idea. That's recommended, but it's not necessary. And we all remember, well, those who are older, the four spiritual laws, which ends, you know, you can put Jesus, if you believe in, except Jesus as your Savior, uh, that's good, but if you make him Lord, that's even better. And they have a picture of a, 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 a throne, and has self on the throne, and that's, you're, you're a Christian, but you haven't made him your Lord yet. And then the other one has a throne, and Jesus is on the throne. And they say, well, you know, you can be a, a really spiritual, dedicated Christian. In order to refute such a serious error, we need to define what the Bible means by repentance and consider the many arguments found within the New Testament as to why repentance is a part of the gospel message and it's necessary if one is to be regarded as a true Christian. Now, the doctrine of repentance, if you study theology, is usually considered under the topic, uh, by Reformed theologians anyway, of conversion. 
And once we understand how repentance is used in Scripture, much confusion regarding this doctrine can be avoided. It is important that we understand that the word repentance has a narrow and broad sense in Scripture. The narrow sense of the word, metanoia, or repentance, refers strictly to a conscious change of mind that occurs in the sinner when confronted with the truths of the gospel. When as a change of mind. This narrow sense takes place as a gift of God in regeneration as the regenerated mind comes in contact <clears throat> with crucial truths of Scripture. And due to the work of the Holy Spirit, the mind agrees with Scripture and thus has a sincere change of heart concerning truths which make up the heart of the gospel. There's a change of mind concerning sin. One has a true internal knowledge of personal sin and guilt. One recognizes one's sin and rebellion against God, one's guilt under the law, and that God's sentence against that guilt is just and fully deserved. There is a knowledge of one's helplessness to get rid of this guilt apart from a work of the Savior. There's a change of mind concerning God. That is, he is holy and righteous and just, and his verdict against sin is fully just, and his judgment against a guilty record is deserved. A proper sense of sin leads to sorrow and a disposition to reject one's old lifestyle, one's old worldview and lifestyle, and seek pardon and cleansing through Christ. There's a change of mind concerning Jesus Christ. Instead of being indifferent or even hostile to the person of Christ and his salvation message, his perfect achieved salvation, one now looks to Christ as the pearl of great price, as the most important person who ever lived. So somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, but they don't really care about Christ and they don't really care about the Bible. Uh, then you can question the sincerity of their faith. Now keep in mind that repentance in the strict, narrow sense of the term is wholly an inward change of mind and must not be confused with the outward change of life that always uh, proceeds from true repentance, what we would call the fruits of repentance. The confession of sin, the making of restitution when necessary, the living of a new sanctified life, are the fruits of repentance. Repentance in the mind, while essentially coterminous with saving faith, is a fruit of true faith. Faith is the instrument that lays hold of Christ who saves. Okay, we believe we're saved solely by Christ. We're not saved by repentance. The moment that true faith occurs, repentance occurs, for a change of mind concerning God's sin in the Bible and Jesus Christ must occur for true faith to exist. That's why you'll often you'll, you'll read theologians and they talk about the flip side of true faith is repentance. Repentance does not save, for we are saved solely by Christ, but the faith that grasps Christ in his saving work is always accompanied by repentance. Where there is true faith, there is always true repentance. Where there is true repentance, there is always true faith. According to Scripture, how does the Lord leadership of the visible church know if true repentance has occurred? 
remember, we can't, we don't know the heart. I mean, we can't see the heart. How do we judge? Like the elders of a church, how do you examine a person to say, well, should you, we allow this person to join the church? <clears throat> well, the person, as John the Baptist says explicitly, must bring forth the fruits of repentance. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were, came to John the Baptist and they wanted to be baptized in the Jordan. And, and, and John the Baptist refused. They said they repented, but John knows their behavior. He knows what's going on. Of course, he's a prophet. He has special insight, but from God. And he says, no, I'm not going to baptize you until you bring forth the fruits of repentance. I'm not just simply going to accept your word. You have to show a credible profession of faith. <clears throat> and the same principle applies to faith. How do we know if one has true faith? Well, the epistle of James says that we know true faith by the fruit or the good works it produces. Faith without works is dead, non-existent, false, not, not real. Repentance without fruit is false, counterfeit, not genuine. For this reason, the Reformed symbols speak of a credible profession of faith. If a person claims to be a Christian but does not have the fruits of faith and repentance, they are not accepted into membership. Remember, repentance does not save, and even faith by itself does not save. Only Jesus Christ saves, but repentance always accompanies true faith, the true faith that lays hold of Christ. Remember, faith, and this is very critical to remember, genuine faith is always only instrumental. It doesn't save. You're not saved because of your faith. Christ saves. Faith lays hold of Christ. It's the instrument that grasps Christ. <clears throat> now, biblical repentance always means to change one's mind. But the scriptures also emphasize that this change of mind always results, results in the fruits of repentance or a change of behavior. All things have become new, we're told. All things have become new in Christ. So if they haven't become new, then you don't have real faith. The change of behavior or the fruits of repentance belongs to the sphere of sanctification, not justification. So the dispensationalists charge that, uh, <clears throat> that an insistence on repentance, as far as the fruits of repentance, before one becomes a member, uh, they view it as a rejection of justification by faith alone. That charge is false. It confuses justification with sanctification. Now, if one preaches the federal vision heresy, also known as shepherdism, because it really originated with Norman Shepherd, who got it from other people, or the Auburn Avenue doctrine, which collapses the term faith with the fruits of faith, thus denying the simple, pure, instrumental nature of faith, then the dispensational charge would have some merit. <clears throat> but all the Reformed and Lutheran creeds and confessions reject the federal vision and teach sola fide, or the pure instrumental nature of biblical faith. And also it's important to emphasize when we're discussing what is necessary for salvation. And this, this is where people get a lot, there's a lot of confusion. We make a distinction between 
salvation in the narrow sense of the term, which refers to justification, and salvation in the broad sense of the term, which will include everything. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Salvation in the broad sense of the term. So you need to make a distinction between those two things. We're saved solely by Christ. We're justified solely by Christ. And we lay hold of Christ by faith. But then all the other graces uh, accompany me, accompany saving faith. Sanctification. Perseverance. And these things are necessary for salvation in the broad sense of the term. Does that mean you're saved by works? Absolutely not. But it simply means that once you're justified, you'll also be sanctified. <clears throat> and I can understand uh, this whole thing came about primarily due to J John MacArthur's book uh, and some of the things he said. And, you know, MacArthur uh, has been very unclear and has said things that are clearly unscriptural. Uh, due to sloppiness. He's not, a, he's not a sophisticated theologian. He's not an R.C. Sproul. Uh, he's not a uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson. Okay, he, He's sloppy. And some of the things he says is sloppy, and uh, he's justly criticized. Here's some statements of MacArthur. <clears throat> the Greek word translated belief is not mere, referring merely to intellectual attainment or moral acquiescence mental acquiescence, but a wholehearted acceptance of everything that is implied in the claims of Christ. You need to believe that Jesus is God and that he died for your sins. And here's where he goes offline. Committing your whole life to him and sacrifice and serving as, as Lord. <clears throat> okay, the, if he had stopped, he would be okay. But when he adds committing your whole life to him and sacrifice and serving him as Lord, he's, he's gone from the sphere of justification and what real faith is, to the sphere of sanctification. Now, faith is necessary for sanctification, but we want to make a... This, this is the problem that Christians have had throughout the history. On the one hand, there's the legalists who want to mix sanctification with justification. They want to add works to faith. That's the old Pharisaical and Roman Catholic heresy. And that's what the federal visionists have done. They've collapsed the term... Uh, they've taken the term faith and they've included works in the term faith. And MacArthur makes the same mistake in the statement here. It's just a sloppy statement. Here's another one. Submission to the will of God, to Christ's lordship, and to the guiding of the Spirit is essential, not an optional part of saving faith. Uh, that's not an act. That's a false statement. Saving faith leads to those things. But good works are not part of saving faith. That's a very sloppy statement. It sounds good, but it's a sloppy statement. Here's another one. Saving faith is placing oneself totally in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, saving faith is the purely instrumental which lays hold of Christ, which leads to, which results in sanctification, which is a total submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. So some of the criticisms of, of MacArthur by the dispensational camp are somewhat justified because he's sloppy. He's been sloppy in the things he state, stated. Faith is always purely instrumental. And if you don't take it as purely instrumental, you fall within the camp of, of the federal vision and some of these sloppy statements. 
Doctrine is important. It's important that we be accurate. <clears throat> now, the old classical dispensationalists deny the need for repentance altogether, saying that repentance belongs to the dispensation of law. The newer dispensationalists, you know, 1950s onward, or at least 60s and 70s, are more careful and will often argue that since repentance refers to a change of mind, one cannot insist on a change of life or what we would call the fruits of repentance for church membership. We are told that people who accept Jesus but continue with a sinful lifestyle are simply carnal Christians. <clears throat> and like I said, I read, I read some modern articles recently that my wife printed out where they argue, well, look at David. Look at Solomon. And they, they, make a, they make a real confusion with people who backslide and then repent uh, with people who simply have never repented. You don't want to confuse the two. Christians backslide all the time. It happens in Christians struggle with sin. That's true. Christians are not sinless. That's true. But that does not mean we can accept a habitual lifestyle of sin and a refusal, and a, a refusal to repent, which is what they do. But for Paul, the expression carnal Christians, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, did not refer to professing Christians who were getting drunk, fornicating, committing adultery or sodomy or being thieves, but to people in the church who had a divisive party spirit. You know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. Paul condemned having a divisive spirit, a party spirit in the church. He's not talking about people who, you know, oh, I've accepted Jesus as Lord, but, you know, I still like fornicating, so I'm going to go to the bar every Saturday night and pick up a chick and fornicate. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about people practicing sin on a habitual basis. And, and, and then they'll point, to the, they'll point to the church at Corinth. But did the church at Corinth have, have serious problems? Yes. But Paul demanded repentance, didn't he? The man who was sleeping with his, uh, his mother, uh, it was his uh, mother by marriage. What do you call that? stepmother. He was, he was shacking up with a stepmother, which is incest. Paul demanded that the man be excommunicated, but Paul demanded that after he was excommunicated in the second Corinthians that they receive him back with love and quit giving him a hard time because he's repented. Paul demanded repentance. He didn't say, oh yeah, you're, you're shacking up with your uh, stepmother. That's okay with me. He's a carnal Christian. You know, so they use first, you know, people use you know, oh, the church is corrupt. Look at 1 Corinthians. We shouldn't demand a pure church. We shouldn't demand repentance. That's a false use of what Paul's doing in Corinthians. Paul's demanding repentance. <clears throat> the Reformed theologians will speak of a, de uh, a denial of repentance as the carnal Christian heresy, and they've also called it easy believism. And there are six solid biblical teachings or reasons as to why we must reject this antinomian version of the gospel. Number one, the Bible repeatedly says that repentance is a vital element of the gospel message. Luke twenty four forty seven, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Christ, Christ emphasized repentance in his preaching, Matthew four seventeen, Mark 1, 14 to 15. Jesus warned the apostles, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, Luke 13, 5. The teaching that, re that says repentance 
is only a Jewish message is refuted by the apostles preaching to the Gentiles. Paul says, I taught you publicly and from house to house testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I just read that, 2020, Acts 2020. And to the Athenians, Paul said, truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men, he's speaking to Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, everywhere to repent. Number two, we've covered this a little bit. The scriptures teach that repentance is connected to faith in Christ. When a person truly believes in Christ, he is not adding Christ onto a pagan, idolatrous worldview, an ethical system. Christ is not added onto a pantheon of gods. Believing in Christ involves a change of mind about sin, about Christ, about self, about God. Burkhoff says this, according to scripture, repentance is wholly an inward act and should not be confounded with the change of life that proceeds from it. Confession of sins and reparation of wrongs are fruits of repentance. Repentance is only a negative condition and not a positive means of salvation. While it is a sinner's present duty, it does not affect the claims of the law on account of past transgressions. Moreover, True repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith, while on the, other, one hand, on the other hand, wherever there is true faith, there is also real repentance. The two are but two aspects of the same turning, a turning away from sin in the direction of God, end of quote. That's very excellent. <clears throat> in modern dispensationalists, who are trying to be obviously more biblical because the scriptures are so clear, will say, yeah, repentance is a change of mind. But then they want to take that and they want to run with it and say, well, that we don't have to demand that people repent in their law of sin. You know, they changed their mind. Now they're Christians, but we don't demand that that leads to a change of, of the fruits of repentance. And that's where they err. <clears throat> a person turns to Christ because he recognizes his guilt, defilement, and hopelessness. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to give the person the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. A godly sorrow for offending a just and holy God. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10. And a desire to turn from a life of sin unto Christ, Acts 2, 38. This change comes from a regenerate heart and is a gift of God, Acts 5, 31 and 11, 18. And here's the uh, shorter catechism. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his own sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, death with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with a full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Notice they didn't say uh, that it is new obedience. It says there's an endeavor, a commitment to a new obedience. That's repentance. It's not talking, they're not talking about faith. They're talking about repentance. Just as no one is saved without the instrument of faith which lays hold of Christ, no one is saved without a change of mind regarding sin in Christ. Furthermore, just as one must look at a person's life in order to see if he has genuine faith, 1 John 1, 6, 1 John 2, 3 to 4, and 3, 10, James 2, 14 to 26, one must also look at the fruits of repentance to see if genuine repentance has occurred. Matthew 3, 8, and 7, 16 to 20. And you have to understand, one of the reasons that modern evangelicals don't want to demand fruits of repentance before membership is because they're into this church growth movement and they want to have a big church. And if somebody says, well, hey, I accept Jesus as my Savior and you immediately make him a member of your church, you're going to have a big church. But if you want some fruits of repentance for that, hey, uh, you got to get rid of your pagan friends and your pagan girlfriend. 
you can't be smoking dope and getting drunk anymore, uh, you're, you're going to have a much smaller church. <laughs> because there's a lot of people who think they're Christians who are still out fornicating and, and getting high and getting drunk and snorting coke and so forth. <clears throat> Saving faith involves more than an intellectual assent to certain facts or propositions. It also involves trust. When a person believes in Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in the scriptures, he wholeheartedly trusts in him for salvation. So true faith involves a reliance, a trust in Christ. True repentance involves a change of mind regarding Christ. A person is longer hostile or indifferent regarding Christ, but regards him as the pearl of great price, Matthew 13, 46, as the most important person in the universe. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. John wrote, he who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, 1 John 2, 4. So to believe is to know and to know is to love. If we do not obey... The Bible says, then we really do not love. And if we do not love, then we really do not believe. True belief cannot be separated from a loving commitment toward Christ, and I'm talking about as a fruit of faith. I don't want to be confused with the statements MacArthur made. And 1 John is, the whole epistle of 1 John is against this idea of easy believism. Well, he fights two different things. One is the idea that we don't sin at all. And he says that's obviously unscriptural, and he condemns that. and says we have to confess our sins to Christ. And the other one is, is this idea, and it's much clearer in the Greek, because the verb tense is the present continuous tense. If you live a, a habitual life of sin, then you shouldn't regard yourself as a Christian. He says that. And then number three, the carnal Christian heresy, or easy believism, presupposes that Christ can be received piecemeal. That people have the option of believing in only part of Christ, or in looking to only a part of his ministry. But Jesus the Savior cannot be separated from Christ the Lord. And this, to me, this is really obvious, especially if you read the book of Acts. To be saved, a person must believe in Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. Christ is offered to the gospel as prophet, priest, and king. Paul repeatedly connects Christ's humiliation, his suffering, and death with his glorious exaltation, his resurrection, ascension, and reign at the right hand of God. <coughs> Romans 14.7-9 For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord. For if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So the carnal Christian heresy is an implicit denial of Christ's resurrection and the implications of his resurrection. They preached the resurrection. Now, the resurrection, of course, proved that God accepted a sacrifice on the cross. It proved that he was the Messiah. It proved that he was the king. It proved that everything he said was true. That's true. But to say, if you don't, you don't have to believe in Christ as Lord, then in a sense, you're denying the implications of the resurrection. It is the resurrected Christ who has all power and authority in heaven and earth, Matthew 28, 18, and who applies redemption to his people. He's up in heaven interceding continuously 24 hours a day for the elect, for his people, for his sheep, for the church, the true church, the invisible church, 
And that is essential. And we believe in that and we trust in that. That's why we don't give up. A Christ who is not king and lord over all is a false Christ, a figment of one's imagination. In his preaching, Peter paid special attention to Christ's resurrection and focused on his exaltation. Acts 2.36, his first post-Pentecost sermon. God has made this Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. The preaching of the gospel involves Christ's suffering and death and is climaxed by the empty tomb. The Old Testament scripture most quoted in the New Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1, which speaks of Christ's exaltation and lordship. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for we, and he's talking about the apostles and the evangelists, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. The Lord. Now, the book of Acts has a detailed, inspired, infallible, inerrant record of the preaching and evangelism of the apostles and their close associates, the evangelists. Note that in not one place in the book can we find the expression, accept Jesus as your personal Savior or let Christ come into your heart. In fact, the word Savior appears twice in the book of Acts. 531, 1323. Pay attention. But the title Lord, you know how many times it appears in the book of Acts? Almost always related to preaching. 92 times. He's called Savior twice, and he is the Savior, no doubt. But he's called Lord 92 times. And they preach Christ the Lord. Believe in Christ the Lord. The resurrected Christ. The King. The Ascended One. The One at the right hand of God. The High Priest in Heaven. They preach Christ the Lord. 92 times. The message of the Apostles was Acts 16.31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So how in God's name has churches come to huckstering off Jesus as some kind of hell insurance policy when the Bible announces him as Lord and exalted him to God's throne? The New Testament preachers preached his lordship and sinners received him as Lord. Lord. Yes, they believed in him as Savior, but they also believed in him as Lord. There is not one New Testament example of, of Christ being offered in any other way. So we can say that God-centered evangelism proclaims the biblical message of the Lordship of Christ at the very outset, not as some second work of grace or as an option later, like the four spiritual laws. We call them the four spiritual flaws. Well, you can believe in Christ as your Savior, and down the road, if you decide you're not going to fornicate and snort coke anymore, then you can put Christ on the throne. That's not the message of the apostles. Christ is preached as Lord from the very outset, and people are commanded to repent and believe in Christ as Lord now, very, this very moment. Number four, the Bible teaches that Christians have been bought with a price, the precious blood of the Son of God. Therefore, believers are not their own, but belong to Jesus Christ. Paul said, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Romans 14.8. He instructed the Corinthians to stop sitting with their bodies because Christ bought them. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? This is from 1 Corinthians 6.19-20. to 20. 
whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you have bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So if a person is a Christian, then he belongs to Christ, the Lord, and must serve him with both body and soul as the Lord in every area of life. So the professing Christian, Paul says, does not have the option of serving self and making self the one on the throne and maybe serving Christ later on when one decides to get serious about the faith. The professing Christian must believe in Christ as Lord. Paul connects the death of Christ with his lordship over believers in such a way as to render impossible the idea that one can benefit from Christ's sacrifice while repudiating Christ's lordship, his kingship. And they say, but look at David, he committed adultery, he committed murder. Yeah, he did. But guess what? He repented. Psalm 51. He repented of his sin. Christians sin. Christians do incredibly stupid things. Sometimes they commit scandalous sin, like adultery. But if they're real Christians, they will repent. If they're not Christians, they won't repent. And then you'll know that they never had true faith. They never had true repentance. Peter denied Christ three times with cursings, but he repented. <clears throat> Number five. And this is very obvious. The scriptures teach that people who engage habitually engage in wicked behavior are not Christians. First Corinthians six nine to eleven. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, is Paul teaching salvation by works here? Absolutely not. He's simply teaching that, look, if you're justified, you're also sanctified. If you've repented, there must be fruits of repentance. He's speaking about the sphere of sanctification. If you're not sanctified, then that's, that's critical evidence that you are not justified. Paul says, and such were, past tense, some of you. Many people in the Corinthian church had lived a lifestyle characterized by sinful behavior. Greek culture was debauched. Corinth was uh, the San Francisco of its day. There were uh, literally uh, houses of prostitution all over the place. It was legal. And the streets, I've seen you know, archaeology, uh, there are phallic symbols carved into the stone on the streets pointing to where the whorehouses were. It's a very debauched culture. And Roman men uh, frequently committed adultery, and it was considered acceptable for many to have sex with a prostitute as long as you didn't have a committed relationship with, like, a, a mistress. And that was typical. And that's what Paul had to deal with in his day. <clears throat> Paul says, once people were converted, that wicked, the li their wicked lifestyle was put away. Paul says that believers should not even eat with professing Christians who engage in wicked behavior. 1 Corinthians 5.11 But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator, 
or a covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. Now, if somebody sins and they're in the church, what does Jesus say? Matthew 18. You go to them, there's a procedure. They're given three distinct opportunities to repent, with the final thing being meeting with the elders of the church, and they're, and they're flat out told, and of course the, the elders have to present scriptural arguments. Look, you can't be sleeping with this girl over here. You can't be fornicating. You can't be living with this girl. You can't be snorting coke all the time. And they, they tell them, if you don't repent, you will be excommunicated. So they're given the opportunity to repent. But what is Paul talking about? He's talking about people who call themselves Christians, and they haven't repented at all, and they have no intention of repenting. They're not miserable in their sin. They're not trying to get out of it. They're not trying to repent. They're happy with it, and they're living in it. And that's the situation we find in many evangelical churches. I went to a large charismatic church, and there were people fornicating on a regular basis. There were people living together in fornication and going to church and singing in the choir. There were homosexuals in the choir who were going to gay bars. Those people should not be regarded as Christians. There's a difference between that and a guy who slips up and then acknowledge, like David and acknowledges a sin and repents. Charles Hodge says this. A man professing to be a Christian professes to renounce all of these sins. If he does not act consistently with his profession, he is not to be recognized as a Christian. We are not to do anything which would sanction the assumption that the offenses here referred to are tolerated by the gospel. In Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, the Reformed Baptist, he agrees. Quote, if a professing convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows the Lord's will but does not mean to attend to it, you are not to pamper his presumptions, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. Do not suppose that the gospel is magnified or God glorified by going to the worldlings and telling them that they may be saved at this moment by simply accepting Christ as their Savior. While they are wedded to their idols and their hearts are still in love with sin. If I do so, I tell them a lie. I pervert the gospel, I insult Christ, and I turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And we used to crack jokes many years ago, well, it's back in seminary, that sin as I please and still have remission. That's the old dispensational hymn, you know. I can sin as I please and still have remission. Christ didn't come so we could sin. Christ came so we would be delivered from sin, the guilt of sin, justification, the power of sin, sanctification. Justification always results in sanctification, but don't ever confuse them. Because if you confuse them, you're a Roman Catholic. If you confuse them, you're a shepherdite, a federal vision heretic. Don't confuse them, but uh, don't ever separate them in the sense of one leads to the other. The Apostle John also repeatedly condemns the idea that someone can be a Christian, yet continue in a sinful lifestyle. Christians still have a sinful nature. Yes, we struggle with sin, with lust. But it magnifies itself in isolated acts of sin, not in a continuance in sin. 1 John 2, 3-4. By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. A believer will sometimes fall into sin. He might 
go to a birthday party and drink too much beer and have to sleep in the couch because he drank too much, he can't drive home. Not good. That's wrong. Drunkenness is a sin. Or he might go to the barber shop. There's a stack of Playboys sitting there and he might pick one up and start looking at it. Because naked women are very pleasing to look at, but it's not lawful. But then he regrets it and he repents. Present continuous tense verbs are used five times in 1 John chapter 3 to describe sinful non-Christian behavior. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. 3.4. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. 3.6. He who sins, present continuous tense, is of the devil. 3.8. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Present continuous tense. Habitually practice sin. For his seed remains in him. 3.9. In other words, he's regenerated. The power of sin has been broken. The person who continually walks in sin is lawless, does not have a relationship to Christ, is of the devil, and has not been born again. Such teaching is clearly as incompatible with the carnal Christian heresy. And that when you get a chance, look up Hebrews 3, 12 to 19, Hebrews 4, 2 to 4, James 2, 14 to 26. Now, once again, the dispensationalists will point to people like David and, 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 and Solomon and people who committed sins. And say, well, no, they didn't make Christ Lord. They didn't. Ha they weren't following the Lordship. Well, once again, Christians sin. Christians do sometimes really terrible things, gossip, for example, uh, dishonesty, for example. But a true Christian will repent. They don't make a distinction. It's very clear that David. Now Solomon, we're not really told much about repentance, but obviously he did because he wrote a book of the Bible. He he wrote uh, a, a, in part. Of, he wrote a couple of psalms. He wrote the book of Proverbs primarily, uh, and other things. So, but Peter sinned. He repented. David sinned. He repented. Christians sin, but true Christians always repent. The apostle John also repeatedly. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And number six, the Bible teaches that those who are justified are also regenerated and sanctified. Justification always leads to a legal declaration, always refers to God's legal declaration based on the imputation of Christ's righteousness and should never be confounded with regeneration and sanctification. But although they are distinct, they cannot be separated. Justification. You look to Christ by faith. You lay hold of Christ by faith. The instrument of faith has nothing to do with works. Your guilt, your liability of punishment is imputed or reckoned to Christ on the cross and washed away, eliminated. Christ's perfect, positive righteousness is imputed or reckoned to you. And therefore you're declared righteous in the heavenly court by God the Father the moment you believe. It's instantaneous, it's a one-time act of God, never to be repeated, and if you're really justified, it can never be taken away. But sanctification is a work of God in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, breaking the power of sin in your life, enabling you to progressively grow in grace 
and in sanctification over time. That's another thing that dispensationalists will point to. Well, look at baby Christians, how much they mess up all the time. Yeah, but they grow. They grow. They may mess up and, and, and do bad things more often, but as they learn and as they study and as they pray, God sanctifies them and they grow in grace and they become, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not the person I was when I was 23 or 22. Thank God. <laughs> you know, if you're growing, you, you grow. In other words, just for, justification cannot occur unless a person is regenerated, for true faith always ex- cannot exist apart from the new birth. It's what enables you to see the truth and understand the truth, and it's connected to your effectual calling where you're drawn to Christ as Savior and Lord. Moreover, everyone who is justified is sanctified. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit in man, which changes a person's heart, the whole human nature. The carnal Christian heresy asserts that a person can be justified while retaining the old nature. According to Scripture, that is impossible. However, contrary to Romanism, regeneration, faith, and sanctification are not grounds of justification. They are non-meritorious and do not contribute one iota to a person's salvation. Christ's merits alone are the ground. Christ saves his people not only from the guilt of sin, but from its dominating power as well. If a believer is not changed, he is not a believer. Justification with God is apart from the merit of works. That does not mean that justification is apart from the existence of works. Justification always leads to sanctification. But don't ever confuse the two. Because the moment you do, you've become a good Roman Catholic, you've become a heretic. you become a federal vision heretic. And that's why the Bible has speaks of salvation in the narrow sense, justification, and the broad sense, which includes sanctification. What's that passage in Philippians? You know, God is, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works both in you, both the will and to do his good pleasure or something to that effect. That's salvation in the broad sense. Because if you don't say it's in the broad sense, then you believe in salvation by works, and nothing, nothing is more condemned in the New Testament than that doctrine. The Apostle Paul taught <coughs> that union with Christ in his death and resurrection is not only the foundation of justification, but sanctification as well. Anyone who partakes of the benefits of Christ's death for salvation and his resurrection also must die to sin and walk in newness of life. Here's what Paul, Paul uh, Romans 6, 1 to 7 and 18. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, or God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. He's not talking about water baptism here. He's talking about baptism with the Holy Spirit. For if we were united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. And here's what John Murray says, which is wonderful. Quote, If we have become identified with Christ in his death, and if the ethical and spiritual efficacy accruing from his death pertains to us, 
that we must also derive from his resurrection the ethical and spiritual virtue, which our being identified with him in his resurrection implies. These implications for us of union with Christ make impossible the inference that we may continue in sin that grace may abound. Murray's analysis of the relation of sanctification to Christ's death is unsurpassed. Regarding verse 7, he writes, quote, the, divisive, the decisive breach of the reigning power of sin is viewed after the analogy of the kind of dismissal which a judge gives when an arraigned person is justified. No Sin has no further claim upon the person who is vindicated, who is thus vindicated. The judicial aspect from the deliverance from the power of sin is to be viewed, uh, is to be viewed, uh, needs to be appreciated. It shows that the forensic, the declaration of righteousness, is present not only in justification, but also in that which lies at the basis of sanctification. Okay, the, 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 uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in us is a result of the declaration of righteous, righteousness for us in the heavenly court due to what Christ achieved at the cross and empty tomb. And the deliverance of, the pow- of this power on the part of the believer arises from the efficacy of this judgment. End of quote. Now Paul refutes all forms of antinomianism in Romans 6. Christ not only removed the guilt of sin by his atonement, he also overcame the power of sin. He destroyed the old man. That is the totality of our corrupt natures. The Bible does not teach that sanctification leads to justification, but that justification leads to sanctification. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Believers are to look upon themselves in their true light as dead to sin, freed from its penalty and dominion. Remember Romans 6, reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin and alive to God. We're justified, we're saved, we're delivered, so we can follow Christ. Just don't don't include obedience or keeping the law, the moral law, in your definition of faith, which was what MacArthur did on occasion, which is very sloppy. I think he I think he's just being sloppy. Uh, but the federal visionists are committed to this idea of collapsing good works with faith. This is a freedom which belongs to them as believers. In virtue of our union with him, the old man is crucified, the new man, the soul is renewed, is imbued with a new life, in which God is the object, which consists in fellowship with him, and which is maintained by devotion to his service and by obedience to his will. Sanctification. The carnal Christian heresy impugns the gospel of Christ. The idea that Christ lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death on the cross to satisfy the precepts and penalty of God's law so that people could violate God's law and continue to live in gross immorality is a blatant contradiction of Scripture. And think about it, it's totally absurd. God hates sin with a holy hatred. He wouldn't send a son so we can continue in sin, that grace may abound, would he? Salvation is deliverance from the guilt and power of sin. Salvation in the broad sense of the term. Christ secured both justification and sanctification for his people. People are not delivered from sin in order to commit sin, but to serve Jesus Christ and do good works for his kingdom. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to believers secures the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thus believers produce the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, Ephesians 5.9. And Romans 6 really repeats what occurs in much abbreviated form in Galatians, which is written much early, 
Galatians was one of the very early epistles, and then he expands on that doctrine in Romans 6. <clears throat> Believers produce the fruit of the Spirit and do not walk in darkness. For a professing Christian to live in sin, habitual sin, is not only to give positive evidence that he is not a real Christian, but is to misrepresent and slander the gospel of the grace of God, to dishonor of true religion and the injury to the souls of men. How many multitudes who have walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and have been assured of eternal life who do not have a true sense of the heinousness of sin, who do not understand at all the true gospel. And once again, that's why I always point people back to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees taught, and the, this was the major, they were the popular ones in Israel, they were the major religion, they had the biggest churches. They taught that uh, the law is very external, and as long as you're not sleeping with a woman, as long as you're not robbing the store, you're, you're going to go to heaven. They had a very external view of the law. Therefore, they didn't think they needed a physician. They didn't think they were sick. They didn't think they needed Christ. They thought they were fine. That's why they hated Christ, because he was telling them they were rotten sinners. So in Christ's exposition of the law, the moral law, he explains it applies to inward unlawful lust. It applies to unlawful words. It applies to unlawful thoughts. And what is the result of all that? And he gives examples about lust about women. He gives examples about hating your neighbor without a just cause and so forth and saying bad things to your neighbor with your mouth. The result of the Pharisees should have been, if they had the Holy Spirit, it should have been, we're undone, we're totally guilty. We're totally guilty. Because none of us can go a day without having an impure thought. But, that's, but they, didn't, they weren't willing to recognize that. And if you study the Federal Vision Heresy, when they talk about uh, good works as part of their view of justification, they do the same thing. They want to externalize it. They ignore the internal aspect of the law. Because once you acknowledge the internal aspect of the law, boy, you super need Christ. Now, have we violated external aspects of the law? Obviously, everybody has. But even the best of Christians violate internal aspects of the law. It's pretty easy not to go down to the supermarket and meet a woman and commit adultery. That's pretty easy for a Christian. But it's not super easy to go 24 hours without thinking one impure thought. <clears throat> They may have accepted Christ. They may have signed a card. They may have bowed at the front of the church and talked to the pastor and elders. But they really do not know Christ. They are on the broad path which leads to destruction. They have been told, peace, peace, when there is no peace with God. They have been duped by a message without God's law, without biblical repentance. They will go to hell because they accepted the lie that one could own Christ as Savior while not submitting to him as Lord. The biblical doctrine of justification contradicts the legalism of Rome and the antinomianism of dispensational-influenced evangelicalism. And we'll just stop there, but just remember, the gospel is precious, and you want to avoid two errors that occur over and over in history. One is, is to mix works with faith, which is legalism, and it's a damnable heresy. The Roman Catholics do it. The cults do it. Federal visionists do it. And they do it very subtly. They're very clever. But the other heresy is to not require repentance, not require the fruits of repentance, not require sanctification. And say, oh, you know, I actually, my wife printed me out articles by modern pastors that says, no, you don't have to, you don't have to have Christ as Lord. 
And they, they give several examples of people they say didn't have God as Lord or Christ as Lord, and like David and so forth, which is nonsense. The church of Corinth was a mess, and Paul demanded repentance. He demanded repentance. And you read let, what Christ said to the seven churches, and Christ flat out says, look, if you don't repent, I'm taking away your candlestick, man. You can't claim to be a Christian and live in sin or believe in heresy. If you want to do that and you continue to do that, I'm taking away your candlestick. And then he talks about all these judgments. So remember that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your dear son, Jesus Christ. He saves us from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, and delivers us from the power of sin. Lord, help us to be consistent with the fact that you've given us your Holy Spirit and regenerated us that we're united to your dear son in his life, death, and resurrection. Help us to be consistent. Bend our hearts. Convict us when we think evil thoughts. Convict us when we sin so that we die daily, so that we repent daily, so that we pray for forgiveness daily and we walk according to your moral statutes, that we love your holy law, that Psalm 119 becomes a precious psalm to us that we meditate on. We meditate on your law day and night so that we may not sin against you. Help us, Lord, to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.